To study theology is not so much an academic endeavor as it is a relational endeavor. It is the study of God himself, what he has revealed to us about his character and his nature, who we are and how we connect with him. And these foundational Christian doctrines are not something new with our generation. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has been built upon the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and prophets as written in God's word. When we do theology, we are joining together with the generations of the church that have gone before us in declaring the timeless truths of God. Whoa, you guys ready to talk theology this morning? Let's go, let's go. So, uh, there's a guy, and he was stuck on an island for many years. He ended up... uh, figuring out a way to just survive off the land and kind of made his home there. And eventually he gets rescued and they come and as they're driving away, uh, the rescuers notice these structures that were built. And they were like, what, what are those structures that you, that you built? Um, and he goes, well, that one, that was my house. I lived and dwelt and ate and it was my protection. Yeah, what, what was that other one? And he goes, that was my church. That was my place of worship, even though I was alone. Uh, I needed to worship God, and that was an important thing for me. They're like, what was that third one for? He goes, oh, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it? Some of you guys are like delayed. Some of you are like halfway through my sermon are going to get it. And uh, (laughs) isn't it crazy that what we've seen the shift we've seen in our culture of people disconnecting and moving. I, like, I feel like since COVID, there's been this massive shift and shuffle. And, and not just you know, that shuffle, but, but we've seen many people um, leave church altogether over the last few years. If you look at sat- statistics, church attendance overall, a, a lot of churches, they're at 60% of what they were pre-COVID. And then I've seen this increase, even as I've talked with people anecdotally, of, of that people that are dealing with church hurt and wounds and, and leadership failures and all these different pieces. And it's reached a point where people start to question the relevance and even the importance of the church. They step back and like, no, the, the church is dying. The church isn't what it's used to be or, you know, the, the influ- it, it, it's going downhill. But here's the thing. The church is God's chosen instrument for his message of redemption through Jesus. And because of that, the church is the hope of the world. And so when we see what is happening around us, the brokenness, the division, depression, isolation, darkness, this is a moment in time for the church to shine brightly with hope and love. Amen? And so we need to be that, and we need to walk in that. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to study ecclesiology, because we've been working our way through these foundational doctrines of the faith, and one of them is the study of the church. And we're going to look at this idea of God's people and what that looks like. So I want to look at three things. I want to look at the mission of the church. I want to explore the leadership and leaders of the church, and then I want to look at the marks of the church. What are the distinctions? Distinctions. What actually makes a church a church, okay? So let's start with the mission of the church. Now, I'm not going to go super in-depth because we're going to study missiology next week. But you cannot talk about church without having a little bit of context to mission. And here's why. 
We often approach it, and we even ask this question, what's the mission of the church? And I actually think that's a little bit backwards. Here's what I mean. It's not that the church has a mission. It's rather that the mission of God has a church. God has always been on a mission from day one. He created us for relationship with him. And then because of the fall, because of sin, there's this separation. And the rest of scripture is the story of God bringing about redemption through a people. And our moment in time, our day and age, the church is God's plan for redemption. Look how Christopher Wright explains it, a theologian, missiologist. He says, it is not so much that the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. That's an important distinction because what can happen as churches, we can start to like play church. You know what I mean? Like we just get together in our little holy huddles and we argue over theology and we talk about you know, systems and structures, but we're not actually accomplishing the whole reason we exist. Why do we exist? We exist for the mission of God to bring about the gospel and goodness and redemption. The church is God's chosen instrument to make disciples by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, equipping and sustaining the, state, the saints for the work of the ministry and representing the kingdom of God within a lost and hurting world. Simplified, we exist to make disciples by reaching the lost. We exist to equip the saints and we exist to represent the kingdom. So, so people come in and there should be an experience when you walk in a church building gathered with the church where you're like, this is different than what I'm experiencing in my daily life. That's what I mean by represent the kingdom. There should be a level of grace and hope and humility. And so the, when we talk about leadership of the church and marks of the church, it has to be in this context of the whole point of leadership, the whole point of these, the, these distinctions is so that the mission can be accomplished. Now, when the apostles start planting churches, one of the first things they did was appointing leaders in the early church. So let's look at what that looks like, um, the leaders of the church. And I, I wanna speak specifically to titles, qualifications, and responsibilities. And, and this is helpful because you know maybe you're new to church or maybe you've been around church for a while and you go to different places and there's these different names and titles for things. I just wanna explain that and then explain why this matters to our lives, okay? Um, there's actually various titles that are used of the same position, uh, the same positions in the church. And, and it's uh, elders, overseers, pastors, and leaders. And so it can start to get confusing. You're like, so that church has elders, and that church has leaders, and that church has a pastor or multiple pastors. Like, what, what, what exactly are we experiencing? Well, in Scripture, these titles are all speaking to the same role. Um, but as the church is being formed, they're kind of bringing about different clarity, okay? So even in 1 Peter chapter 5, look at this. You see these different, uh, the, these different terms used. So I exhort the elders, this is the word, the Greek word presbuteros, among you, to shepherd, this is actually where we get the word pastor, appointment, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's where we get the word overseers. And there's other places where, you know, you can translate that as like bishop or overseer. 
And so it's the word episkopos. And so there's these different terms that are used. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders. This is a biblical word, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And what this is telling us is, no, this is not some you know, meaningless role in the church. No, you have to give an account for how a church is led. You have to give an account for how you taught. You have to give an account for how you brought about unity and, and moved forward the mission. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's why if you have any complaints for me, just email me at kristen at rise.cc. I will, I will get all of them, right? I want to do this with joy, right? But, but here, here's the thing. I want you to see that these titles, they speak to a characteristic of a biblical leader. Uh, the word elder, it speaks to this idea that, that it's a wise spiritual teacher. An overseer, it speaks to the protection and oversight of ministry. Pastor, it literally means to shepherd and to care for. And leader is this idea of guiding and rallying for mission and purpose. And so we can get confusing and we can start to argue, well, no, you used the wrong term. But actually in the scriptures, these terms are used interchangeably. Uh, Alexander Strzok, he wrote a book called Biblical Eldership, which is a really helpful book. And in it, he explains, he says, the fact that the apostles and first Christians used the term overseer or pastor as a synonym for elder demonstrates flexibility in the use of leadership terminology and a desire to communicate effectively. And and so what we find is, no, use a term that is biblical, that that has biblical truth and meaning, but also fits your cultural context. And so some churches, they'll, they'll use that term pastor, Others, it's elder. Others, it's bishop. I always wanted to be called the bish, but, you know, that never flew for some reason. You know, I can't, I can't even get a designated parking spot in, you know, in this parking lot, and so I guess I'm, that title's not going to work. But way more important than titles, we, what you need and what we see are the qualifications and the responsibilities. And this is, this is vitally important because when we see pain and fallout, it's because it's when churches are not led by people who are actually qualified. And here's what I mean. Let's look at these qualifications. Look at it with me. He says, so a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must be hospitable, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not greedy with money. It continues on. It says, he must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud. And the devil will cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church should speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Now, now look at this list. You, you know what you notice what stands out to me when I read this? It's character, 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 able to teach, character, 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 character. That's just because you don't want to listen to boring sermons, okay? But, but, but this is the point, this is character. This is what qualifies somebody to lead. And wh- you know what causes damage in today's churches? It's overlooking a lack of character because of an abundance of giftedness. 
we find these people and we're like, man, we see some flaws in their life. There's some things that make me nervous about how they interact with others and, you know, there's some, some issues, but man, they're so gifted and they can draw a crowd. And you know what the problem is? That ends up being some of the most damaging people because they can galvanize and rally a crowd. And, and their, their charisma can take them way further than their character can sustain them. And this is why we have to look at character. It's the character of a church leader. That is what qualifies them to carry out the responsibilities of a church leader. And this is what we see. We see it here, and we also see it in Titus. This is why it is laid out so clearly. And, and this is important. Because some of you guys, you know, maybe you're new to church or, you know, maybe you have a, you know, a, a history with this and you're like, okay, what, what does this have to do with me? Let, let me tell you what it has to do with you. Some of the hardship and pain that you've gone through in churches is, is because of this issue right here. People did, that did not have the character to shepherd well, to protect the oneness and the unity. It is vitally important that we see these things play out in our, in our churches in a huge way. Now, I, I want to take a little side note because I think this is really important when we talk about qualifications because one of the biggest discussions around this, if you've been around church at all, is, is the, the distinction between men and women and their role in leadership. And I want to help you um, get a framework for how to think about this and how to actually discuss it, okay? And, and I want to introduce something that I would call the umbrella of orthodoxy. Now, what orthodoxy is, is it means right thinking about God or theology. These are long-held theological positions, okay? And so it could, you can apply this to any issue. And what you need to ask yourself is where different people uh, uh, land on this, are they within orthodoxy or are they on the outside of orthodoxy, okay? So in a situation like this, um, when you're talking about men and women, there's kind of two theological camps. There's egalitarian and there's complementarian, okay? And essentially, here's what egalitarians uh, believe. They believe that both men and women can hold all offices of the church. And complementarian, there's all kinds of variances of it, but at the end of the day, they say, no, the office of elder is for men only. Now, here's what I want to say. Both, both churches in these categories and both individuals in these categories can hold to Scripture and defend Scripture well. Just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean they're unbiblical. I, I don't know if you were here you know, a few weeks ago when Bershears came and talked about inerrancy of Scripture. It's Scripture that's inerrant, not your interpretation, okay? So, so be careful in those areas. But we need to be biblical in our interpre interpretation of these. So both complementarian and egalitarian fall under the umbrella of orthodoxy, but there's a danger on both sides that you can go outside of Scripture and you can, you can no longer be biblical. And here's the tendency on each side, okay? For the egalitarian, they can go too far into what I would label Christian feminism, where it's actually a demeaning of men. You see this actually in Ephesus. This was, this was happening, and it was being being undermined. And, and now they're saying, we're just trying to comply with culture rather than what scripture has said. And, and that is unbiblical. And you have to steer clear of that. But you can actually go outside of orthodoxy on the other side into male patriarchy, where, where it's a silent, rather than being a partnership, it's a silencing. And they take tradition over the Bible. So there's going to be churches that you do not agree with, okay? That, you, that you're like, I don't, 
I don't align with how they function. But that does not mean off the bat they're automatically an unbiblical church just because you disagree with their polity and structure, okay? Here's what, here's what, here's what I need you to understand and to think. Here's three things when it comes to male-female relationships that we need to all agree on biblically. Here's the first one. Men and women both are gifted and called to ministry, Okay? The, the Holy Spirit's gifts are not gender specific. Although it does sometimes feel like a borderline miracle when a, when a male gets the gift of listening, right, okay? <laughs> but the Holy Spirit isn't going around like, oh, you're this gender so I cannot give you, no. Both men and women are gifted and called to ministry. Second, men and women are called to different roles and responsibilities. You cannot deny this from scripture. There's so many places as you're reading through, what does it say? Tell the men to do this and tell the women to do this. Tell husbands, this is your call, and tell wives, this is your call. This is good and beautiful. When God made humanity, it says he made them male and female. And so there, there's this distinction that is good. And what our culture is trying to do is get rid of this distinction of gender, and it's insulting God because he was intentional and purposeful in how he created you. If you are a woman, God made you a woman. He, you are not a mistake. It's beautiful and wonderful. If you are a man, God made you a man, and he has a role for you in your life. So we need to see these differences and embrace them and receive them from God. And here's the third one, and this is vital, and this is important. Men and women are called to partner together. This is all throughout the Bible. You have to ignore a lot of scripture to not see this. Literally from day one, right? Adam, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. You know what's not good? That Adam is alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a suitable partner for him. Adam needs an Azair, he needs a helper in his calling and ministry. So there is a partnership with Adam and Eve. You see it in the Old Testament. Do not ignore that the nation of Israel would have been wiped out if it wasn't for the partnership between Esther and Mordecai. God uses men and women in these ways. Jesus, he had both male and female disciples. He's, kind of, he's one of the first known rabbis that we know of that had female disciples as well. And please do not ignore the fact in Luke where it says, you know, because all these disciples, those 12 disciples, they left their nets and followed him, which is great until you have to buy food, okay? Guess who funded the ministry? So a group of female disciples. They were entrepreneurs. They literally funded this ministry for, for the disciples. When Jesus rose from the dead, do not ignore the fact that the first human being to proclaim the gospel, that Jesus is alive and well and risen, is a woman. There's, a, there's beauty in that. When Apollos, he, one of the early teachers in the church, he's teaching and he gets off on his theology. Who comes along and corrects him? Priscilla. She sits him down and she's like, hey, you're off a little bit on this. Why? Because she loves him and she she cares about him. There's a, a partnership. Even Paul's letter to the Romans, which I think is the most beautiful piece of theology ever written. I think it's his most important epistle. It's weighty and it's heavy. And when they would send these letters, they would send them along with somebody who could help explain and interpret. You know who Paul sends his most important theological document with? He sends it with Phoebe, the deaconess. Here's what I need you to see in the church, wherever you land, 
we're called to partner together. Yes, we have different roles, yet we're all gifted and called, but there is a partnership that is vital. And so if you, are, if you would say, if this is important to you and you are complementarian, you can be complementarian, but make sure you look and say, no, both are called and gifted. We see a distinction of role and responsibility, and there's a partnership together. You're egalitarian, you can be egalitarian. You can hold a biblical egalitarian view. You can be a biblical egalitarian church, but make sure you say, no, we are both called and gifted, and there is different in roles and responsibilities. Don't disengender people in this, for the sake of culture. Say, know what a scripture called us to, and how do we walk in, how do we walk in this? But, and here's what I see. When, when churches do this well, biblical, not cultural egalitarian, biblical egalitarian, biblical complementarian, they look so similar. Now, now, here's the thing. For me, like, I frustrate egalitarians because I hold to the view that what Scripture says when it gives qualifications for elders, that, that those are men. I, I see that pattern throughout Scripture. I see it with the disciples. Yeah, they're male and female disciples, but there seems to be a different level of responsibility put on those men. I see it in Adam and Eve. Yes, there's a partnership, but there seems to be this different level of responsibility put on Adam. And so for me, when I read this, this feels, this feels clear for me, okay? But I frustrate the heck out of complementarians for how much I push for partnership. And they get frustrated, like, oh, no, you gotta have this, you know, wh where's this at? And you know why I push for partnership? Because I read the Bible. Here's the thing. My goal is to not make you pleased or happy with me. My goal is to follow the word of God, okay? So if everybody's just mad and pissed off with me, I don't care because I don't stand before you at the end of my life. I stand before God, and I give an account for how our church is led, and you better believe me that this is a church that will be led biblically and say every single person in this room matters, is called and gifted for ministry to live out actually being the church. Think about it this way, okay? Um, I'm called to lead in my family, right? I, I'm called to headship in my family. What does that mean? You know what that means? That means I have a responsibility. See, when we think about church leadership and, and biblical leadership, oftentimes we think about authority, but scripture is calling us to responsibility. No, no, there's a weight to it. And so in my house, when I'm leading, and I'm leading my family, what leadership looks like in my house is I'm cultivating the calling and gifting of my wife. I have a responsibility to bring that out in her and to love her in those ways. When I'm living that out, when we're making a decision, do I say, do I sit back and be like, you know what, listen, babe, we gotta make a decision, so um, can you just leave the room while daddy decides? You know, no, no. No, I actually, I actually, leadership means drawing that out, to say, no, God didn't leave me alone in this decision, that, that he's given me a partner in these areas, and this is what the church should look like. It should be people partnering together, saying, no, we have different responsibilities, we have different gifts, we have different roles, but there needs to be a partnership, there needs to be a plurality that is beautiful in these things. When I... Uh, a number of years ago, we were really wrestling through this um, as a church. And in the middle of it um, is when my mom passed away. I shared that story a couple weeks ago. And I go down to California, and I spend time with my family. I spent a couple weeks down there kind of just sorting through things. And, and I come back, and I had a guy reach out to me. Really, he really cares about this a lot, and he reached out to me. And I, 
my assumption was he was reaching out to meet with me to just kind of um, just grieve with me and see how I was doing and stuff like that. Um, and we sat down and we started talking. He started asking these questions. And he made this statement. He made this comment. And he says, you know, Jason, I need you to understand that the reason your mom died is because God's trying to get your attention. And that, that was a painful moment when I realized, oh, this guy cares more about his theological argument than he does about the soul of his brother in Christ. And a few years after that, um, I was sitting down to coffee with Sherry Gray, who had planted this church with us, and we were having a conversation, and she, she goes, you know, I, I just feel like the Holy Spirit's calling me to tell you um, because your mom can't tell you this, uh, but I need to tell you how proud I am of you for how you've planted and led this church, and your mom would be so proud too. And I remember in that moment just thinking, we need spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. We need brothers and we need sisters. This is the beauty of the church. The church is men and women playing unique but beautifully God-given roles in the church, partnering together to see the mission accomplished. Now, what do these leaders do? What are their, okay, that's the titles and the qualifications, but what are the responsibilities? You guys, the primary responsibilities are to teach, to protect, and to lead. Uh, you could phrase protect maybe as care, but every, every responsibility fits within these, that they're to teach the Bible, they're to protect the unity of the church and protect from wolves and to protect people and, and to make sure people are cared for and then to lead in fulfilling the mission. Now, now teach, protect, and lead what? the mission and marks of the church. So this is why I wanted to start with this because as we look at the marks of the church, the role of leaders is to say, we're called to do this. And so how do we teach that? How do we protect that and how do we lead that? So let's look at these marks, okay? There's kind of seven distinctions that I think are vitally important that the church gathers, the church preaches the word, the church observes the sacraments, the church is unified in its mission, the church worships, and the church is gifted for mission, and then we just looked at a church has to have qualified leaders. So what are these marks? Let's start. The church is a gathered people. Now, Jesus made a promise about his church, but I want to understand this. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love this prophecy, because Jesus literally prophesied this. We are the fulfillment of that. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, oh, this might happen if things go well. No, my, I will build my church. And the church has moved forward. It's a, he has promised it, and it's happening. But the word that he uses is the word ecclesia. It means a gathered people or gathering. And so that's when you read church in your Bibles, it's the word ecclesia. It's I will build my gathering. Now, here's the problem. When we start to translate over time, sometimes there can become confusion. And at one point, when the Bible was being translated into German, um, instead of the word ecclesia, they started to use the word kirka, a German word. And it's very close. It means gathering place. Ecclesia, gathered people. Kirka, gathering place. So they started to use the book. Do you see how the confusion came about, right? So here's what I need us to see. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he didn't mean he's gonna come like, you know, check out the beams and reinforce them and, you know, grind the floor down. Like, that's not what he's saying, okay? That's not an actual architectural call. He's saying, I'm gonna build a gathered people. 
And if we, can, if we start to think about church as a building or a place, we miss it. Church is people. And so we have to understand this, that we are a gathering that meets in a gathering place. We are a church that meets in a church. We are an ecclesia church that meets in a kirka skating rink, okay? That is, that, that is how we stand and how we operate, okay? Think of this, okay? So and then Hebrews, it says, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together. See that we're gathered, we have to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. What's happened is people have started to say, we don't actually have, you know, I, I, we don't have to gather in order to be the church. I, that is a false dichotomy. That's a split. I had a conversation with a gal a couple weeks ago. She's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I just tell my pastor, hey, when I'm at church, I'm thinking about being out on the river. And when I'm out on the river, I'm thinking about Jesus. Where would you rather me be? I'm like, that's like a dad saying, when I'm at home, I'm thinking about golf. <laughs> but when I'm playing golf, I'm thinking about my family. Where would you rather me be? I'd rather you be with your family, bro. Like, I'm not saying don't golf, right? But be present. That's a false dichotomy. We are a gathered people. And so this is why, listen to me, this is why when COVID hit and we got a few months in to our two weeks to flatten the curve and no one was still gathering other than Home Depot, we stepped back and said, this is a biblical call. This is not just like some fun idea. We are called to gather together. And so what does the leadership of a church do? It says, hey, we have to teach this we have to protect this. No, this actually matters, and we have to lead this. And so we made a drastic shift in our model. Other churches, they were going around, and you know what they were say, like, saying? Like, the churches in the nation are like, no, like, we're just doing church on, our numbers are higher. I'm like, please, bro. Like, my, I can't even get my wife to watch church online. Like, people, that, those numbers mean nothing because it's not about consuming content. It's about gathering as a worshiped people. And so we made a shift, and this is one of my favorite pictures because this represents this shift that we made. It was in this room, and I would get up and preach on Thursday, and we would space people out. Everybody loved the couches. They're like, bring the couches and ferns back, right? And I would preach to this group. Anybody who would come, I'd preach to them on Thursday, and that way we had a sermon to use on Sunday because we had about 15 micro-gatherings, smaller gatherings throughout the week because that's what church is. It's a gathered people. It's not content consumption, right? And so, but we had to sit back and say, no, we gotta love people. We can't just dig our heels in and make a political statement. This is, it wasn't about politics, it was about obedience. And so people were in different, there were some people who were more vulnerable in that time. And we had to love them well, say, no, this is a small mass gathering and we love you. This is a place that you can actually gather and be comfortable. And, this is, and, and then other people, some of you yahoos, like we adapted to you too, right? All over the place. But this was a moment, I'll never forget one of the Thursdays where I got up, group was sitting there and I preached and I got done and I walked off the stage and the live stream came to, team came to me and they're like, hey, um, so we had an issue with the recording and nothing got recorded. And I was like, well, we gotta do this for Sunday. So I got up and I told the people who were there, I was like, look, you can leave if you want to, you just had to listen to me. Um, but it didn't get recorded and I have to preach this exact same sermon again. So I'm gonna go in the back, they're gonna play the bumper and I'm gonna come back out. And I went in the back, they played the intro video and I came out 
and almost everybody stayed. And they laughed harder at my jokes the second time. <laughs> but why? One, I felt really loved, but two, because they loved the church. They said, no, we're gonna do whatever it takes to be a gathered people because this is the call, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. I don't care if there's a pandemic or a war. You figure out how to be the church in that place and moment and time because a church is a gathered people. Second, the church preaches the word. Both the preaching of the word and the authority of the word have to be a distinction of a church. You undermine that or you wipe that out, you are no longer a church. This is what it says. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instructions. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Are we experiencing that? Yeah. yeah, we are. But it's only the word that has the power to transform lives. Not human opinion, not creative little skits. It's the word, it's the preaching of the word. And so if you show up to a church that teaches from anything other than the living and active word of God, please leave immediately. It is not good for your soul. You are drinking poison. If you show up to a church that compromises clear truths of scripture in order to appease the demands of culture, please leave immediately. It is not a true church. A true and authentic church is under the authority of the word of God. Not culture, not tradition, not man's agenda, but God's word. The church preaches the word. Number three, the church observes the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments that we observe are baptism, and communion. Why? What, what do sacraments do? They are a visible sign and symbol that convey spiritual realities and express the grace of God. This is why we participate in these things. Because as we, as we celebrate baptism, we're getting a picture of the power of the gospel. As we come to the Lord's table and take communion, it's a reminder of, of Jesus' broken body and blood poured out. We participate in the sacraments. Now, here's the thing. We can get to a point where we're too willy-nilly with this or a point where we add, um, you know, we really kind of add, become too rigid about the sacraments. Here, here's what I mean. Let me, let me give you a couple of stories to explain this. Um, we can become too loose with it. I, I was in a meeting uh, at another church, good friends of mine at, at New Hope Church, and we're sitting there having a meeting. And while we're having this meeting, a gal comes in. She's like, hey, I need one of you guys uh, to come out because somebody just walked in our building and he's wandering around and I need you to find him and talk to him, okay? So he's like, so one of the pastors gets up and he's like, no problem, I'll go. And he goes and finds him. Yeah, about five, 10 minutes later, he comes in and he's, he's laughing pretty hysterically. We're like, what happened? He goes, well, I finally found him. He was in the bathroom and he was using our hand dryer to dry his hair and his, all his clothes and there was water everywhere. And so I walked up to him and I was like, you know, he walked up to him and was like, hey, can I help you? He's like, yeah, I, uh, I just came to, um, you know, to, to get baptized. And he, and, and he goes, that's amazing. Like, I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and make a public declaration of your faith. And so, like, that'd be great. He goes, oh, no, I'm good. I already did it. 
He's like, I just needed your baptismal. <laughs> so the guy snuck in, like found their baptismal, baptized himself, right? Okay, that's a little on the loose end. I just feel like, you know, I'm not, I don't wanna make it hard for people, but I feel that just feels a little on the loose end, okay, right? But on the flip side, I have a buddy who was dating, he was dating his girlfriend, and he went to Catholic mass with her, and they were gonna do communion. And one of the things that the Catholics teach is transubstantiation. And what I, what I mean by that, what they mean by that is that when you're taking communion, when it's blessed by a priest, it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. It just kind of looks like that. Now, we don't teach that here. There's a gluten-free wafer. Thank you for the symbolism, okay? But he, so because of some of their structures and systems, if you're not a member of that church, you can't take communion, so you're supposed to go up, do some kind of, you know, some kind of symbol, and then, you know, walk off. Well, he doesn't, he's a little slow on his, you know, on his motion, and so the priest just sticks that wafer, fleshy wafer, right, in his mouth, right? And so he, he immediately turns around, grabs it out of his mouth, doesn't want to be disrespectful, so goes, sits down, puts it in his pocket. Well, a nun sees him. And she walks up and she's like, we do not put the body of Christ in our pockets, right? That's a little rigid, right? You know what I'm saying? Okay, like, so not, like, we don't baptize ourselves, but like, let's be, you know, like, we don't need a 17-week course on how to take the Lord's Supper, okay? Like, I, rather, I want to think of it as, as my daughter, Nova, when she visited and she got to attend her first wedding. It, she was in awe the whole time. When she saw, it was Jordan and Autumn's wedding, and when she saw the bride Autumn walk down the aisle, you should have seen her face. It was glowing. She just was like, that is incredible. She could not take her eyes off of Autumn. She wanted to see the cake cutting. She wanted to see the dance, I, every piece of it. I went up to Nova afterwards because I officiated the wedding, and I was like, Nova, how did I do? She's like, fine, but it's not about you, Dad. It's about the bride, right? <laughs> And I'm like, that's kind of true, right? That's kind of spot on. Now Autumn is like this celebrity in our house, right? She's like, oh, is Autumn gonna be at church today? Well, I see Autumn at school. Is Autumn gonna babysit? Like she, because of what she experienced, I want us, the point of the sacraments is they would remind us of the awe and joy of the gospel. When, the, when those brothers and sisters in Christ go under the water and come out and we cheer and clap and celebrate, we are being reminded of our own death our own, our own old self being buried with Christ and raised to new life. That's why we celebrate. When, we, when I see families gather around communion and the Lord's Supper and pray together, when I see a group of youth come, it's because we're, we're being reminded of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's a symbol, a picture. And so this is why churches, we observe the sacraments, and, and it has to be there. Fourth, the church is united for mission, okay? And I already talked about this idea of mission, but I want you to see you have to be united around it. Ephesians 4 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The church should be unified because what unifi unifies us, what unites us, it's not that we're on the same page in every secondary and tertiary theology. That's not what unites us. We're not united around political ideology. That's not what unite us, unites us. What unites us? The blood of Jesus and the spirit 
And this is why it says, make every effort to keep. He doesn't say make unity. He says keep unity. Because the unity that we have was already bought with the blood of Christ. Our role is to protect it. Our role is to fight for it. And what do we unite around? We unite around our call to be a beacon of hope and make disciples in our city. That is what unites us. Michael Byrd says, the oneness of the church contains a unity in diversity since what unites believers is infinitely stronger than anything that might divide them. We are united in our identity in Christ and our collective mission to make disciples. And a church that just gathers in its holy huddles and bickers about all the churches around them and argues over theology is not a true church, you guys. A church is united by its collective mission to make disciples. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And we are saying, yes, we will. Uh, the church is a worshiping community because the church is called to be an earthly representation of the kingdom here on earth. And this is why when John, look at this glimpse that John gets in Revelations, Revelation of the new heaven and the new earth. He says, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the lamb, together with all the angels, it says, they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. We are a worshiping community. When you walk through these doors, you should get a glimpse of eternity. You should get a picture of heaven. This is why, listen to me, worship is a spiritual battle. It is a warfare. That's why you feel so hesitant to actually embrace worship because there is a spiritual battle going on in your heart and in this realm that, that, that the spirit is calling you to worship your God forever. And this is why as a church we gather together to worship. The first thing we ever did in this building when we got possession is we had a worship night. And we, we set up two speakers and we gathered on the skating ring and we started to write names on the floor. Some of the names of people who are here today baptized because people started praying for you years ago. Because we were dedicated, no, this is a space for worship and that we will gather. And so the church has to gather. And lastly, the church, it is gifted and equipped for ministry. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you realize this? What this is saying, do not miss this, you are the church. It's you. you like, you are the workmanship of God. He made you just the way that he made you with your skills and personality and gifting. Stop criticizing the way that you are and stop, start walking in it. Church is not a crowd that gathers on Sunday. Church is a collective of missionaries. It says God has made us in his image and he has created us to be used for his glory. Seriously, this might feel uncomfortable. Just take a minute, look around the room. Look at the people in this room. This is the church. Each person you see and look at, you don't know their story, you don't know their background, but God has gifted them for ministry. God has called them for ministry. And the role of the church 
is to actually equip that. Look at this, what it says in Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to what? To equip his people for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. You are the ministers of this church. You are the beacon of hope going out into the world. It is, a church is not about a building. A church is not about a logo. A church is not about a vision statement. A church is people set apart and called by God, gifted with spiritual gifts, equipped and empowered for the work of the ministry. We're, we're called to called to be a beacon of hope. And this is a dark time and a dark world that we are facing. You know what the hope is? You know what God's plan is? It's you. Together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, walking in the goodness that he has for you. It tells us how can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if you have not declared? And how can you declare if you are not sent? Church, you are sent. Be done coming to church today and rather say, no, I'm gonna gather together and then I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go be the church. I'm gonna go walk in what he has called me to do. I love, I love the church so much. I love what God is building here, this beautiful collective of unique people. But it's not for us and our own sake. It's for God's glory Others, the world's good, but we get to experience some of the joy in it. Would you do me a favor? Would you, would you just stand up if you are able right where you're at? And here, here's what I want to do. I just want to read something over you. It's a vision that was written down years ago when we started the church. But I just want you to hear it, and I want you to internalize it. No, this is what we're called to do and to be. We exist to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. Everywhere you turn in our city, you will see followers of Jesus rise to their true calling, declaring, displaying, and living out the power of the gospel. Like ink spilled across a map, every neighborhood will experience the transforming power of God's people on mission in their city. As the local church, we exist to call forth to raise up and to send out disciples with a mission, hearts set on fire to see the kingdom of God break forth in our city. Do you want that? No more are the days of the people of our city feeling like they have to leave in order to dream big and live with significance. No more young lives wasted with idleness and futility. Our city is filled with a life and purpose that is brought about by the gospel. No more are the days of the church losing influence with each passing generation. Rather, there is a wave rising up, a wave ready to crash over the city, soaking it in the love of Jesus. This is the church's moment in time. Our turn to have our voice be heard, and that voice will declare with vitality, Jesus is alive and well in our city. Amen? Amen. That the gospel is raising the spiritually dead to life. Amen? That the kingdom of God is on a mission to bring forth life in our city. We cannot merely be churches with our own self-focused missions, but rather we must recognize that God himself is on a mission in our city. And if we will humbly submit ourselves, then the mission of God has a church. So therefore, 
we will seek with everything we are to raise up and mobilize an army of missionary saints. We will not stop until the gospel is saturating every corner of our city. One day, every person in the city of Gresham will know that Rise exists. Every person will know that there is a place to belong, a people to call home, and a God who will call them to more than they ever imagined. Because together, we are the church. Together, we are on the mission of Jesus. And together, we will rise. Jesus, you love your bride, and you have sent us with a mission. Lord, would we fulfill and live that out? Would we be obedient to your calling? Would we not get distracted by lesser things, but would we preach the gospel? Would we equip and encourage our brothers and sisters in this room? And would this church be a place where you can truly get a taste of the kingdom that is to come? Jesus, we pray all this by your nature and your name. Amen.